All right, good morning, everybody. Super pumped for you to be here. It's awesome that you're here this morning. We are doing a series on vision. And uh, last week, Dave began just with sharing uh, his appreciation for this church. He's three years in and just shared his love for you. And I just want, I want to echo that thought as we uh, plan and strategize and pray and dream together. Uh, we're, we're both really, and our team is really... Uh, just caught up in the sense of we love for this church. And I, I've been here for 14 years now, 12 on staff, holy moly, and uh, uh, long, longer than Dave's three. But uh, he's got more done in the last three years, so I don't know. Uh, anyway, we're, we're just, I want to say just for Lauren and myself and my kids, we love you guys. We love this church family. We've grown over the years here. We've kind of been here with during thick and thin, and we've learned and grown so much, and we just feel like this is an exciting season where the Spirit of God is doing something fresh here that we're just, we're really thrilled about. And so, such a privilege to be a shepherd here, and we just, we love you and uh, are excited to, to be here with you. So let me just pray for us as we get into this series, part the part two of this series. Lord, we love you. We are profoundly impacted um, by what we've sung already, that you are good to us, and we can only re- respond with praise that is constant on our lips. God, we thank you for who you are, who you have revealed yourself to be in Christ Jesus your son, and we pray that you would quicken our hearts today to hear you, to be responsive to the truth of your word, and to live into the story that you have called us uh, to as your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, Dave began this series on, on vision, and we are talking about the big picture. We're dreaming, looking at the, the big picture of who we believe God calls us to be as a community. And uh, these are the things that we believe are so important that uh, they are worth living for. These are the ways in which we will keep on living until we die or Jesus returns. That's the stuff we're talking about in these weeks. Uh, these are the things that we believe help us accomplish our mission, that help us live into the mission of God that, that we are saying is ultimately, when we look at the scriptures, the whole story, we believe the mission, the end of life for us is to live in a way that is about becoming more like Jesus and making him known. And we want to live into that fully. We're passionate about kind of resisting status quo living and living into the dynamic of the kingdom because we are desperate for Jesus. We're desperate for his reign and his rule to break into this place and into our world. And, uh, and that is exciting because we just kind of can't stay where we are because God loves us as we are, but he loves us too much to let us remain as we are. And so last week, Dave said that this picture of the future that we would prefer to see, this picture of the future that we want to see happen in our community is this, that we would live grace-fueled lives for a grace-filled world. That that is the the picture we want to paint, the the future we want to live into. Like, what if we did that? What if we lived from grace, motivated and saturated by the grace of God in our life, rooted with our identity in His grace? What if we lived in a way that saturated our world with His grace? You think about who would benefit from that. Think about what habits would have to change in you. Think about that in your home and at work and in your neighborhood. What a beautiful reality that would be. 
And this, we believe, is something the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is, what he's done, that the gospel empowers us to live out. And so uh, this living a grace-fueled life, this living from grace, and this living into uh, saturating our world with grace only happens while we root our lives in growing faith. And so we talked about this this last week. Uh, Growing faith is ultimately about taking God at his word, uh, hearing him, ordering our life around what he says. And we trust God as we know him. Uh, We know him. As a person to follow. It's, this isn't about a list of religious to-do items. It's about a person that we follow and become like. Do you know what the Bible refers to? Do you know what the Bible calls people who trust God? Who who rely on Him to rescue them from their sin and darkness? And who order their lives around becoming like Him and making Him known? you know what the Bible calls that kind of person? A disciple. Yeah, a disciple. In fact, Jesus told his disciples, he said, hey, come follow me. Come follow me. Come after me. Come be like me. It wasn't an invitation to just agree to some ideas or conform external behaviors. It was an invitation to become like him from the inside. And so Dave talked last week about spiritual practices and the role that they play in our lives. These habits, these rhythms, these avenues of grace. These avenues of tapping into grace, these ways of sustaining connection and intimacy and identity in the gospel. The the role that these practices play in our lives are that they constantly return us to the grace that saved us and continues to transform us. And we're going to talk more about this in the weeks to come during our Emmaus series. But we believe that we're called to live as a community that prioritizes practices that nurture relationship with Jesus. Well, Jesus didn't just say, come follow me. He also said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 28, go make what? Disciples. Go make disciples. Right? Who will make disciples? This is a multiplication movement. And Jesus says, go make disciples, teaching them to obey all I've commanded. And so this is the the call that we believe we need to respond to. And so this for us looks like, this culture, this lifestyle of one-on-one, life-on-life mentoring, that we would pair up with others and intentionally pour our lives into others and, and intentionally share in this pursuit of Jesus together because the growing faith gets handed off person to person. And that is the story that we are living into. We can't have, as we look at the future, we, we cannot imagine a community that takes Jesus' call to be his followers seriously without prioritizing practices that nurture relationship with him. We cannot imagine a community that takes Jesus' call to follow him without prioritizing mentoring and doing life on life with one another. And so that's where we're headed in the months and years to come. Amen? Good. Uh, Now, that's not all, though. That's not all. It's the foundation, and it's the wellspring, uh, but it's not all there is to living out this mission of becoming more like Jesus and making him known. This mission of becoming more like Jesus and making him known. What's the mission? Becoming more like Jesus and making him known. Good. And so that's also not all there is, although it's foundational, it's the wellspring. It's not all there is to living into our vision of grace-fueled lives for a grace-filled world. Grace-fueled lives for a grace world. Yeah, okay. We have some work to do. It's okay. There's only week two. We've got two more to go. 
So here's the deal. Today, I want to talk to you about our next value, our next lens. We, this series is called Vision, Living in Focus, and, and, and we want to kind of hold up some lenses to look at. We recently had this uh, lake day as a staff, and it was more fun for some folks than others. Some of us lost contacts and wedding rings, uh, and so thank God for Amazon Prime and $10 three-packs of rings, and I tell you, it's the same thing, honey. Um, but anyway, uh, we... <laughs> There was this moment for me when my head hit the wave and uh, this contact just goes flying out of my eyeball. And uh, there's something about living out of focus, right? There's something about squinting your way through life, right? And kind of going, hi, John, that's you, right? Okay, and we just kind of, uh, it was this great moment for me to recognize again, like how vital our focus is, how important the lenses we view our life uh, through are for us. And so we're going to talk about this next lens, really, of looking at how we live out this mission and vision. And this next lens that I want to talk to you about today is that, that we would live as a community of radical love. We live as a community of radical love. So there's growing faith and radical love. These are vital lenses to living out this mission of becoming more like Jesus and making him known. And so growing faith should organically and naturally follow uh, into and proceed into radical love. Uh, as we consider living in focus, as we consider the lenses we wear, we would be missing something if we didn't have radical love as a critical part and defining note in our life. So Jesus says in John chapter 14, he says this, he says, a new command I give you, right? He says, uh, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. How remarkable is that? Jesus says the characteristic, the defining mark, the distinctive note of the Christian is love. The mark of the Christian is that they love. Let me say that again. The mark of the Christian is that they love. And so being known by love is a non-negotiable for the Christian. It is not spiritual extra credit. It is not a bonus or an option to the spiritual journey. But love is actually a part of the fabric itself of the spiritual journey with Christ. This is woven throughout the scriptures. Uh, love of God and love of neighbor is, in fact, at the heart of the entire Torah, the first five books of the Bible. According to Jesus, the entire instruction of Moses in the Torah is summed up as loving God and loving neighbor. That The Torah was intended to shape the people of God into a people who love. In Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is speaking to this little church in Galatia, says to them that the evidence of the Spirit of God in their life, the, the fruit of God's Spirit regenerating you, making you alive spiritually, is that you love. Love is the fruit. Ephesians, Paul says that the church builds itself up in love. In Romans, Paul exhorts the community to let no debts be left standing between one another except to love. Love is the mark of the people of God. Love is the defining note, the distinctive quality that marks out Jesus' people in the world. And yet, and yet, it seems that that is not the way we are known. 
is it? We have some problems here, our tribe, don't we? In fact, when you ask people what they think of when they think of Christians, what are the first words that they think of? Judgment. That came out first in first service, too. It's also first on my list. What's the second thing that they think of other than hypocrites? That's the second thing on my list again. Good job. You guys are looking at my notes. (laughs) Judgment. Hypocrite. What else? Legalist. Anti something. You fill it in, right? Anti long list of options. But we're against. That's that's tends to be the way we're seen. So love is rarely at the top of the list when we describe the characteristic lives of the church. In fact, a lot of young people today find themselves liking Jesus, but rarely, rarely disliking the church. And I can't help but think that if we were known by love, that narrative would change. That narrative would change. The problem is, we can't, in our culture, even be on the same page about what love is. We're confused about love, aren't we? What, what is love? I'm waiting for the head bobs, but okay. Uh, so 90s folk, that was for you. So the thing is, we can't even get on the same page about the definition of love without a common reference point. The problem is we all kind of think about love from our own vantage point. We think about love from our own hurts, or we think about love from our own infatuations, or whatever that is. And so how then... Can love be one of the main lenses that focuses our lives and characterizes us as the people of God? We can't even get there apart from having the same reference point for love. And the good news, the gospel, proclaims a message of love and says that this is love, that Jesus would lay down his life for his friends even his enemies, to make them into friends. So we know something about love at this good news reference point, that it is sacrificial, that it is action-oriented, that it is redemptive, and that it is something that overcomes obstacles. Love is defined in Jesus himself. Love is something that is to be utterly radical, Why are we using the word radical to talk about this value or this lens? Well, it's not just because your current church leadership grew up in the 80s, although we are drawn to the word radical. Uh, It is ultimately because radical love is a standout kind of love. It is a distinct love. It is a different selfless love, and it tells a different story than the love story of the world. The love story of the world tells a story of infatuation. It tells a story of selfishness. But the love story of the gospel... It's a love story that is a story of sacrifice and selflessness. It is a self-emptying and redemptive love. It is a love that is unearned and freely given. Woohoo! I'm trying that one out instead of amen, just to get some, okay, <laughs> woohoos. But how do, how do we engage this story? If it's not something we are naturally living out in a way that is easily recognized in our world, if it is something we are challenged with and even understanding, how do we begin to engage a story of uh, of love that is radical? How do we begin to embody this as a community? So let me suggest that we have to zoom out 
We have to kind of go all the way back and rewind and look at the Bible from the beginning. In fact, anytime you have a theological quandary or even a sociological problem, I suggest that it's good to start at the beginning and just work your way all the way to the end and repeat. It might take a while, but it's going to be fruitful for you. And so we go back to the beginning and we have to ask the question about our human capacity for love. We need to even begin with the question, what does it actually even mean to be human to begin with? So take a look with me at verse uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. What does it mean to be human? Verse uh, 26, Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and over all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So what does it mean to be human? What does that mean for us? Fundamentally, the Bible is making the claim that humans bear the image of God. That we are like him. That the image uh, of God, the invisible God, makes himself visible through humans. Uh, but we all know that we don't image right, do we? We are uh, marred by sin. And sin messes with the image and it is distorted in us through sin. But according to the Bible, it's still there. And so to be human means that our origin, that our purpose, and that the fabric of our very identity and being is to reflect God's likeness back into creation. Are you with me? That's what Genesis is saying. And so... We are to share in his likeness. We are to human as a verb. We human as we reflect the likeness of God. We are dehumanized as we reflect the likeness of our idols or our own selves. And so immediately we find in the text that humans, uh, to be human is not a solo effort. To human is not a solo effort. It's foundationally relational. Uh, it's a together thing, right from the start. It says, he, mankind was made in the likeness of God, male and female. Uh, mankind is a them. It's not a me. It's, a, it's an us. It, and it means difference and likeness. It, 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 we're alike, but we're not the same. See, gender even matters here in the sense that it reflects the nature of God as other and equal. Do you already see what an alternative story the Bible's telling us even about gender from our world? That there's otherness and equalness. And in the image of God, he created them, male and female. And so this is the testimony of scripture about our common identity as humans. We are intended to reflect God back into creation through community and in relationships. We are not meant to be alone. What was the one not good thing in Genesis chapter 2? That Adam was alone. Only not good thing. Because he can't human alone. In fact, I want to show you the way the author of Genesis uh, plays this out poetically. See, in Genesis chapter 2, Adam meets Eve for the first time. And he does something really profound here. And I want you to catch this. See, up to this point, the narrator has been referring to Adam in Hebrew in relationship to the dirt, which in Hebrew is Adama, right? And so... Adam is formed from the Adama, and he's gets is one part dirt, one part d divine breath, and he becomes living being. 
And so he's formed out of the dust, Adam, Adama. But now Adam's first words, the first time he speaks before the entrance of sin is when he names himself and when he names his wife. And he calls her Isha and he calls himself Ish. You don't see it in the English. It's just like it's man and woman. But he refers to himself instead of in relationship to the dirt, Adama, Adam, he refers to himself in relationship to his wife. Ish, Isha. And Isha is kind of like Isha, right? Like I think he's jaw dropped when he saw her for the first time. He's like Isha. Like it's kind of like, whoa, man, right? Like I think that's why it's there. He's like, what? This is in the garden? This is awesome. Right? So, um, but here's the point. Here's the point. What, what defines him in this moment? It's his relationship that defines him. It's community that's defining for him. He becomes aware of himself only in relationship. I remember the first time, it might not be the first time actually that I really became more self-aware in community, but it's a time that I remember strongly. I had the privilege of growing up in a church community, really from adolescence on. And part of my engagement in that community was playing music and I was on the worship team. And here's the thing you need to know about teenage Matt. I really thought I was way cooler than I was. (laughs) I really thought I was awesome. And you were just kind of lucky to hang out with me. And I, and, and I was kind of a jerk. Like, take me now and amplify how much of a jerk I was. And it was, you can kind of begin to understand, like, right? And so one, one of my first memories of becoming known and knowing myself in the context of community was one night, Jody, who had graduated high school and was volunteering her time to serve youth, to serve the church, uh, was in the back. And I, apparently I made a face. I said something. I can't imagine me saying something lame or making a face that would hurt anybody's feelings. But my wife's not here. She's in San Diego, so she can't fight back on this one. But, uh, Right, I, I, I did something. I didn't like what she was doing because I think she didn't make me sound awesome or something from the back as a sound person. And I remember getting sat down with a youth leader and Jody, maybe one other person, and getting that confrontation of, Matt, when you do certain things, it makes us feel certain ways. I just remember her in tears, just feeling so wounded. And it was the first time. I saw myself in that moment and realized my words have the capacity to tear people apart. Of course, this is an important moment, right? Because God had a redemptive plan so that he could say, your words have the power to build up too. But it's all about yielding yourself to me. Right? And so this moment of community was important in my life because I was known only in the context of relationship. By myself, I was awesome. In relationship, I recognized sin for what it was and I recognized transformation where I needed it. You see, this is what it means to be human. We need one another. And part of why this is so awesome This reality that we are uh, meant for relationship, that we are defined in community, is because it is actually part of being like God. Go back to Genesis 1, 26. God refers to himself as a us, our. He's speaking about himself with plurality. 
What in the world is that about? And so throughout the Old Testament, you get these references to, to God and his singleness and his pluralness. And so Jesus comes and he begins to make sense of some of these passages, but he says mystifying things like, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Or I'm sending the Spirit and he will mediate my presence to you. And in John 17, he says this as he prays to the Father. Listen to his words. He says, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. What? Does God share his glory with another? No. And yes, what's happening here? And so Jesus, who shares in the glory of the Father, shared it in eternity past, and he shares it through the cross and the resurrection and into eternity future. And when you put all these texts together, you come to this conclusion that all of Scripture affirms that God is one, and yet he is three. That he is three inseparable yet differentiated persons and one essence. That God in his essence is one and three. That God in his essence is this communion of divine persons in relationship for eternity. So, start to ask the question, like, so what's God like by himself? What's God like by himself? Like, think about that for a second. Can you imagine what God's like by himself? Like, try to get your head inside God. What is that like? It's like a party, actually. It's like there's these three party hats. There's this constant glory where the Father's glorifying the Son and the Spirit's glorifying the Son and the Son's glorifying the Father. And there's this mutual love that exists between them. They're utterly satisfied. They don't need you to feel worship because there's worship within the Trinity. And so there's this awesome reality of God never being alone. And always fully satisfied in his relationships without ever creating a thing. There's this picture um, from the Middle Ages by this guy named Rublev. And he's depicting Genesis 18 where the three visitors come to Abraham. And he it's this theophany, this appearance of God to Abraham. Because Abraham worships and they don't turn him away. So it seems to be that this is a picture of God in the Old Testament. So he's depicting this moment. And notice the position of the heads. That each member, this each person within the Trinity is deferring glory and preference to the other. This is eternal love that exists. And yet, look at the invitation to the table. There's this open spot at the table. This invitation to come into this communion and this relationship. This is who God is. And so since God is Trinitarian, he's relational. He's love in his essence. And so that means that he's utterly satisfied without us. And yet it also means that he, out of the overflow of his love, chooses to share it with us. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that so cool? And so we can be perfectly loved because he has perfect love in himself. Listen to Jesus' prayer. He invites us in to this relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit of perfect love. Jesus prays in John 17, verse 20, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, 
so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. How about that? That's amazing. So this Trinitarian love is this invitation to you and I that we can be a part of this fellowship. And so this is the gospel narrative about humans and God. We're designed to reflect the community that exists within God's own self. And we're created to have fellowship with God himself. But here's the problem. Most of us are not shaped and formed by this story. Most of our imaginations are not captured by the Trinity. Most of us have been discipled and formed and, uh, and shaped within a cultural narrative. And so the two dominant cultural narratives that shape us more than you will ever realize are the Western narrative and the Eastern narrative. And it kind of works like this. Oh, that's the eraser. Can I have that back? There we go. So in the world, there is the West and there is the East. And between them, there is a divide in paradigms and thinking and and philosophy. The Western approach that you are familiar with at home within is this expressive individualism where ultimately life is about you as an individual, that there is really nothing about reality other than material reality. And so you are left to your own impulses and that is what drives you and that is what defines you and that is who you are. And so as a Western individual, I trumps us. I eclipses the collective. The individual eclipses communities. We are fine doing violence to communities as long as I'm not scathed by it. It's fine to neglect whatever as long as I'm getting ahead. We wouldn't really say that out loud, but that's how we live. To the exclusion of communities. You see this in gentrification. You see this in all kinds of social issues all across the U.S. Now, what about the Eastern philosophy? This is that kind of uh, Buddhistic approach that says you're really just a drop in the ocean. Material reality is illusory, actually. It's just consciousness that, that you must arrive at, that you disappear. And so the us, the collective, eclipses the individual. Right? That the collective completely subsumes the individual. You see this in communism, right? You see this in these Eastern approaches to life where it's all about us, but the self gets completely eclipsed. And so these are the dominant narratives of our world. And we're shaped by them tremendously. Now, uh, what if the, our view of reality was not individualistic nor collectivistic, but was Trinitarian, right? Where we live in the presence of this triune God who invites us into his perfect communion and says, do life in shalom. Where the Trinity, as a lens for life, is the only lens where individuals are not elevated above communities and communities are not elevated above individuals. Because within the Trinity and within the Trinity alone, you have persons, Father, Son, and Spirit in total community. Isn't that remarkable? 
that God in himself is able to uh, be in community without completely eclipsing the person and is able to have distinctive person without neglecting the community. We only have hope to be able to have dignified persons and exalted communities within the context of God's own Trinitarian essence. And so if you look at life through the lens of these things and you say, what's the essence of life? The Western approach says, it's all about me, right? The essence is me. So we don't really have to care about you. Now, if the Eastern approach says the essence of life is us, nobody really cares about you, right? Where do you go? You disappear. But in a Trinitarian approach, you have shalom, perfectly webbed together relationships and harmony. Are you with me? Is this cool? Clap for the Trinity. How cool is he? Right. Or them. Right. So, so that's pretty sweet. But we're formed within this individualistic story, aren't we? There's two expressions that I tend to see frequently as we live out our individualistic narrative. If you are a Westerner, you will default to the individualistic narrative. And you have to be aware of two very dangerous realities. The first is this, that we express our individualism as consumers. As a consumer, I'm willing to take what you will give me. That's my goal. I will take what I can get from you as long as it serves me. And so consumers take... They're defined by their wants, their needs, and their desires. And consumers will be in community as long as they sense that it's meeting those needs. Consumer relationships are the relationships where we say, I'll be in your life so long as, right? Now, of course, there's healthy boundaries within that. There are times to get away. But generally speaking, we tend to be consumeristic in relationships. Say, well, I shouldn't have to take the initiative in this relationship. You should want to be with me and you should serve me and you should make all the effort. And if you make an effort in a way that I like, then I'll maybe return the favor. Or we do it in a church level too. We say, well, I'll like this church as long as it sings the songs that I like and the way that I like. Or we, or whatever, you know, as long as the preacher preaches the way that I like. And so consumers will stay away from community most frequently because community fails to live up to their idealistic expectations. We become disenfranchised as consumers and we go, hey, no, no church really seems to be able to pull off community in a way that's really right, right? You know why? It's full of people, right? <laughs> or we tend to be this other expression of individualism and this is colonizers. Now, a colonizer is a little bit different. They approach life this way. You will take what I give you. All right, the consumer says, I'll take what you're giving. The colonizer says, you'll take what I give, so long as you are being like me. And so they're defined by control. They want to manage their social space so that they are not uncomfortable. Colonizers do not like you not being like them. You find a lot of them in church, by the way. Uh, and so they need you to be like them because it validates their fears. They tend to stay in community while the consumer stays out of community because of their idealism. A colonizer will stay in community because it fuels their sense of power. Because right? I like to be kind of in charge. And being in charge can take all kinds of different forms. It can just be merely being right. Okay. Now, 
These are the Western individualistic expressions. But what about a Trinitarian expression? What if we had a truly Trinitarian expression? What would that look like? Well, that would be communion, a communion of saints who are, by the way, they're humble enough to be receptive to you, to the other, instead of a colonizer, but they're selfless enough to give to you instead of a consumer. You see that? Isn't that cool? So they're mutually defined. They're not defined by their control and they're not defined by their wants, needs, and desires. People in communion are defined by the desires of Jesus and by the needs of each other. And a communion will move past its idealistic wish dreams and live in the complex, messy reality of redemption and sin. That is communion. It it will be teachable, it will be sacrificial, it will seek unity over self, it will seek the well-being of others even if it costs them. And so it's the lens of the Trinity that enables us to live like this because it enables us to live from love into love. And people who live in communion, by the way, are people who understand how radically they've been loved in Jesus and they can radically love from that place. From grace, toward grace. So how do we live that story? Let me get real practical with you. Two practical things. On one hand, to get practical about living out a Trinitarian kind of community, we have to embrace actually just Jesus himself. The only way we become savvy to community is if we become connected to Jesus, the author of community. You see, we're the branches, but he's the vine. It's only connected to him that we bear fruit relationally. And so once we embrace Jesus in his way, we can also now make a choice to live in community, to live relationally. That is a choice, and it's a hard choice because we tend, as individualistic folks, to do one of two things. When we live apart from community, we become one of two things. When we push otherness away from us, we become isolated, And when you're isolated, no one has access to you. When you're isolated, no one is there for you and no one can challenge you. And when you're isolated, that is when you get most inside your own head and you can become like teenage Matt, right? Think you're really awesome. Or you can think you're really woeful and bad, right? Do you you see this? The other thing that happens when we push community away is we, the kind of Trinitarian community I'm speaking of, is we become isolated, or not isolated, insulated. To become insulated is uh, when maybe some people have access to you, but they're all just like you, and all they do is affirm the things that you affirm, and nobody has a chance to challenge you. And so you have to have these personal practices that sustain a Trinitarian way of life. And Dave and I talk about this all the time, because on one hand, it's just it's how we live as friends, but it's also how we believe God is calling you all forward in relationship to him to become more like Jesus and make him known, to be grace-fueled so that you can grace-fill. Okay? And so that these are the two things that pr- practically get lived out when we choose to live in a relationship. And to live in authentic relationships, we have to choose transparency and vulnerability. And to choose transparency means... I'm willing to show you me. I'm willing to show you who I am, who I understand myself to be. But vulnerability says I'm willing to let you speak into me. I'm willing to allow you to speak truth into my life. And when somebody lets you in like that, you have a role then to do your best to speak into who they are with both grace and truth because that's how Jesus spoke and that is who Jesus is. Do you see your need for this kind of community? Do you have relationships like this? Do you have some people like that 
who can see who you are, but speak into who you are and speak with grace and truth. Are you like that in anybody's life? Our vision is that all of us would be like that. All of us would have that. So that's one of the ways. The next thing, the next practical way we live this out functionally here as a church body, we're a big group. We have to have a pathway for that. And that is the the personal application is you got to do that on your own. You got to find a way to be relational. The other way that we can serve you is we can provide structures for you. And the structure we provide is community groups. It is the vehicle here for getting connected to people. And now here's the thing. Our groups are intended to be defined by grace. We are all showing up on the same level. Not one of us deserves to be in community any more than anyone else. Jesus and Jesus alone has bought the ticket into belonging. And so we come defined by grace, but we also come defined by helping. It is our goal for us to commonly pursue being like Jesus together and to help each other along the way. And so this is why we do groups. Group leaders, this is why we do groups. It's not about information. It's about transformation. And so community groups, they're not uniform and they're not perfect. I've been in a lot of groups. None of them have been perfect. And I'm pretty sure it's because I'm there, right? And I'm pretty sure it's because other people are there. And people are imperfect. But here's what's awesome. God chooses to use the imperfect vehicles of this world to form his perfect character in us. It's only through the tension of our imperfection that we are pushed to grow together. That is what's beautiful about choosing a life of community groups. And it is an uphill, upstream reality. You have to be intentional. You have to choose to resist the cultural stream of isolation or insulation. And it is critical. And not only do we become sharpened, but we become known and loved and supported in this context. And so groups become this context where life-on-life mentoring can happen, like Dave talked about last week, where we can encourage each other in our spiritual practices and share the joy of a kingdom-focused community with people who are far from God. And so this fall, we're offering groups as this way of connecting and directing people. We want to connect you to meaningful relationship, but we don't want to leave you there. We want to direct you towards becoming like Jesus as you engage in spiritual conversations together. You want to get in on that? Fill out a welcome card in the pew in front of you. We want to hear about it and we want to help connect you there. But it's easy to stay away from this. It's easy to keep our distance from it. But let me ask you, what if we did it? What if we lived this way? What if we took on a Trinitarian lens? What if we jumped into relationships with transparency and vulnerability and grace and truth and we resisted isolation, we resisted insulation, we did life together? Do you think that that might begin to change the narrative of our world? Where the church would be more known by its love than by its judgment and hypocrisy? Do you think this might answer our need to change the narrative in our world about who the bride of Christ is. It happens intentionally. And let me just read this last, this letter from the, the second century as a way of just calling us in to this kind of alternative, radical love. Because if we live this way intentionally, we might actually be known by our love in our culture. And in this letter, it's an unknown source written to a guy named Diognetus. And it was this letter that described the manners of the Christians in their day. It was an apologetic for the kind of people Christians were in the world. Listen to what this unknown author says about Christians in the second century. 
It says, for the Christians are distinguished from other men, neither by country nor language nor the customs which they observe. For they neither inhabit cities of their own nor employ a peculiar form of speech nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. The course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men, nor do they, like some, proclaim themselves the advocates of merely human doctrines. But inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according as the lot of each of them is determined, and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. It says this, they dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them their native country and every land of their birth as the land of strangers. They marry as do others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, but at the same time, they surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored, and yet their very dishonor, they are glorified. They are evil spoken of yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. And when punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners, and they are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. To sum up all in one word, what the soul is in the body that the Christians are in the world. You want to be a part of that tribe? You want to live that story? Because that's what God calls us into. I want to invite the worship band up here and we're going to take communion together. I want to invite you to come and take the bread and the cup and we're going to take it together as a way of saying we share in this one one reality, that we are called a family by one Father, that we are set free from sin and bondage by one Savior. We are empowered and given life by one Spirit. We are one body together, living into this story of radical love, caught up into the communion of radical love that exists between Father, Son, and Spirit by the grace of Jesus Christ and His death and resurrection. Let's declare that today and propel, as, as a declaration that propels us forward into our world to tell this kind of story. Come forward this morning, receive the elements, and hold on to them. And we'll take them together in a moment.